Well, I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving time, a little bit of a opportunity to be with your friends and the people you love at your house, and I hope you come back refreshed. If I remember my student days correctly, and I think I'm still in pretty good shape mentally to reach back that far, um, this was always a hard time. Um, you get a little bit of taste of family, a little bit of taste of the fun and the joy of the season of the year, and then all of a sudden you have to come back and face final exams, papers on Kinsman Redeemer or whatever it is you're writing papers on. <laughs> Can't imagine anybody writing a 10-page paper on a Kinsman Redeemer, but anyway. <laughs> I couldn't even write a 10-page paper on a Kinsman Redeemer. <laughs> But um, use a use a Pica typewriter in triple space, right? Anyway, uh, I mean, I understand. I understand uh, that you get Christmas on your mind and the holidays and what's ahead. But let me just encourage you. This is what character is all about. You know, everybody does it when it's easy to do. As my dad used to say to me as a kid, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to fight the current. Um, and Dewey just mentioned to me, nobody ever remembers how you start. They only remember how you finish. That's the way it is. I spent a lot of my years in athletics, and nobody ever asked how you played the game. All they ever asked was who won. And that's the way it is in life. And the temptation in the society we live in today, a society full of entertainment, uh, sort of self-indulgence, is just to do what is fun, just to do what you want to do. And that doesn't build any character at all. That just is a dead fish floating downstream with a current. So in the next few weeks, we're going to get a little test of your character. And you're going to be able to look at yourself and say, I have some character. I can, I can do what has to be done, even though it isn't what I want to do. And that's how you build integrity into your life. And then as you look at second semester, a lot of you are going to be under the temptation to say, I think I'll just lay out next semester, uh, work a little bit, fiddle around a little bit. Let me suggest to you that the Lord didn't lead you here to quit. That doesn't build any character at all. Whatever the price is to finish is the price the Lord would have you pay because that's the kind of person you want to be. Whatever you establish in the patterns of your life now is exactly what you're going to be the rest of your life. And if you start out quitting, you'll probably end up quitting. So learn to finish strong and learn to make commitments and learn to do your best. And when it comes down to the wire, that's when you give it everything you have. And as you look toward next semester, if the Lord led you to this college, and we believe he did, then he's leading you here to stay here and to be faithful to that commitment and to let him do the work he wants to do in your life. It really is a sad thing when you think that the average college student goes to something like 2.5 schools and takes 7.5 years to get through. Now that doesn't mean that, um, that uh, something's wrong with the school, that just means that people tend to follow the, the flow of their own whims and not to nail themselves down to real commitment. So make the necessary commitment to do your very best to honor the Lord and to offer Him the kind of service He is due and uh, be faithful to finish strong in this semester and the full year and, and really fulfill the opportunity God has given you here. I remember a few years ago reading a, a story that is absolutely unforgettable. It appeared in one of the leading newspapers in Boston. There was a very wealthy family that had a special christening party. A new baby was born into the family, and uh, in that Eastern society, frequently when a new child is born into a Catholic family and the child is christened, uh, they have a very special celebration in the home and all the guests in the family and everybody comes over. 
And guests kept coming and coming in. The hostess was taking their coats and taking them in the master bedroom and putting them on the, on the bed. And as the first hour went by, maybe 25, 30, or 40 guests came and their coats were put on the bed. And finally, after everybody settled into the party, someone said, where's the baby? In that instant, the mother reacted as if she hadn't thought about the child since the thing began and instantly remembered that she had laid that little baby in the middle of the bed in the master bed. Ran in there, started throwing coats around the room, found out the baby was suffocated and dead. Imagine being so ignored at your own birthday party that you're suffocated to death. Every time I think about that article I read, I think about Christmas. How that Jesus is totally ignored at his own birthday. The world pays little or no attention to him. And for us, as Christians, we want to do just the opposite, right? We want to pay a lot of attention to him. He's the focal point of all our thoughts. The songwriter put it this way, What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? When angel, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. What child is this? This, this is Christ the Lord. The world asks the question, what child is this? Some say he was just a good teacher. Just a noble teacher, a great philosopher. But good teachers don't claim to be God. And some say he was just a good example, but good examples don't hang around dirty politicians, drunks, and prostitutes. And some say he was a religious madman, but madmen don't speak the words he spoke, don't speak clear and lucid truth, don't speak with great perception and insight into human need, and invariably madmen do not attract women and children. And nor are they served by men with the intellect of Peter and Paul and John and Luke. And others say he was a religious fake. He was nothing but a man perpetrating a hoax, a so-called savior. However, fakes have a way of staying dead. And some say he was a phantom, but it's very hard to nail a phantom to a cross. And even more difficult to see a phantom bleed. And some say it, the whole thing is only a myth, but myths don't set the calendar for history. And everything is either B.C. or A.D. What child is this? Pilate said, he is the man without fault. The Frenchman Diderot said, he is the unsurpassed. Napoleon said, he is the emperor of love. Strauss, the atheist, said he's the highest model of religion. John Stuart Mill, the philosopher, said he's the guide of humanity. Lecky said he's the highest pattern of virtue. Picant said he's the holy one before God. Martineau said he's the divine flower of humanity. Renan said he's the greatest among the sons of men. Theodore Parker said he is the youth with God in his heart. Francis Cobb said he is the regenerator of humanity. Robert Owen said he is the irreproachable. And somebody recently said he is a superstar, but all of that comes short of who he really is. Thomas put it right when he said, my Lord and what? My God. You see, the evidence is overwhelming in the word of God that this child is none other than God in human flesh. Look with me at the Gospel of John. And I want you to examine in the time we have the identity of Christ 
which John is so concerned to present in this wonderful gospel. First of all, in chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, he said, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Three times in the first 18 verses, John says in one way or another that Jesus is God. Later on in this gospel, in that very monumental 14th chapter, starting at verse 8, we have that familiar text of Scripture in which the deity of Christ is again identified. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Now that becomes the theme of the Gospel of John, the deity of Jesus Christ. As John brings this wonderful Gospel to a conclusion, he says these things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. Beginning, middle, and end of this Gospel focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ. That the child born in Bethlehem, whose birthday we celebrate at Christmas, was none other than God himself. The evidence is overwhelming. First of all, look at chapter 1, verse 48. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he saw him not with the physical eye, but with the eye of divine omniscience. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. There he saw him with the physical eye, but he had already seen him with the eyes of his own omniscience. Nathanael, recognizing this in verse 49, said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. The point being that Jesus manifested his deity through his knowledge. Through his knowledge. Chapter 2, verse 23, the people were beholding the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, uh, all men, because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And again, John emphasizes that he could see things that the eye could not see, and he could know things that the human mind could not know. He knew the thoughts of the hearts of men. Again, in chapter 4, we see his divine knowledge. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. He not only knew what he couldn't see, and he knew what was in the heart of man, but he knew the history of a life of a woman he had never met. And he knew all about all of her background and all of her past, and she was absolutely overwhelmed by that knowledge. Not only his knowledge is evidence of his deity, but his works as well. In John chapter 5, in verse 36, The witness which I have is greater than that of John, he says, For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, the miraculous works, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. My works... 
In John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. Again, in chapter 14, verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. So, John claims Christ is God. John supports that claim in two primary ways. His words of wisdom and knowledge and his miraculous works. It is the knowledge of Christ, supernatural knowledge, and the works of Christ, supernatural works, that affirm him to be God in human flesh. But there's one other beautiful strain through the whole Gospel of John where John affirms who Christ is. This comes not particularly in the knowledge of Christ, not particularly in the works of Christ, but in the claims of Christ. What did Jesus claim for himself? Let's begin by looking at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 35. And you're very familiar with this verse. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You familiar with that? That's the first of a series of I am's through the Gospel of John. And I want you to look at them, if only briefly this morning, because they give us the identity of Christ in his own words. The first of them is, I am the bread of life. Now, do you, you wonder sometimes uh, when you hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, or I am the vine, or I am the water of life, the living water, or I am the resurrection and the life, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the vine and you are the branches. You, you, if you're like me, uh, years ago I asked myself the question, well, what brings this up? Does he just all of a sudden stand up and say, I am the bread of life? And people say, what's he talking about? Where does he come off with that? Who, who's looking at what, what? What has brought this discussion up? I mean, you can't just walk into a crowd and say, I am the living water. People are going to say, what, what is that? That's really off the wall stuff. So you need to look a little bit at the background and you can see that Jesus was absolutely the master of capturing every moment. And that whatever he said fit so perfectly into the scene that it was absolutely devastating when he said it. For example, let me give you the background. The day before Jesus said that, he had just fed 5,000 men. It says. He fed them, you remember? The loaves and fish, you remember that? The, the, the word for loaf means a little flat cracker. And the fish that he made, he created bread and created fish, just stood there and created it. One little guy came up and he had five little barley crackers and two little fish. And what they did was catch these little fish out of the Sea of Galilee and pickle them. And that was, that was the basic Big Mac of the day. Two barley crackers with a pickled fish in the middle. And this is what the little guy had. And that was it. And you remember what happened? Jesus just kept creating it, creating it, creating it. So he fed this 5,000 men. Undoubtedly, if there were 5,000 men, we can assume there were 5,000 women. And we can also assume in that event that there were probably 20,000 kids. So it was a large crowd. This large crowd of people Jesus fed. He fed them enough so that they were all foddered up, the Greek word says. They ate till it was up to here. And then there were enough baskets collected, 12, because there were 12 apostles and they needed to eat also. And so the Lord had fed all these people. Now, these people showed up in the morning and said, hey, this is the way to live, folks, free food. Do you realize that life in ancient times primarily revolved around obtaining and preparing food? 
There were no restaurants. When you worked, you worked in order to purchase food. And when you purchased food, a woman spent her time preparing the food for you to eat. Life was all about working in order to eat. The, the whole of their time was consumed with that. Fast food preparation, as we know it in our society, has created a tremendous amount of leisure time. And you know what some of the results of that are. The old adage, idle hands are the devil's plaything, has been made very, very clear to us. But in ancient times, everything revolved around food. And if anybody could come along and provide free food, they would really, they would really create a total welfare state. I mean, anybody who could create free food would immediately be elected Messiah. And that's exactly what these people did. They tried by force to make Jesus the Messiah. So he fed them and they showed up and said, where's breakfast? He fed them dinner the night before. He went across the sea. They all went all the way around to where he was and said, we're here. Where's breakfast? Free food. It was in that context that Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And then he said in verse 35, he who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You people have got a problem. You're hung up on physical food and what you really need is what? Spiritual food. Go back to verse 26 and see the dialogue that leads up to this. Jesus answered and said to them, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw signs, not because you saw miracles and wonders. In other words, not because you're concerned about what those signs indicate in terms of divine revelation, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled, all you want is free food. How absolutely crass. What a low level you live on. Do not, verse 27, put out all your effort for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Don't spend yourself looking for physical food. Spend yourself looking for spiritual food. And they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He said, You need spiritual food. They said, How do we get it? He said, Believe. Believe. And the implication of the believe was believe in me. Get this, verse 30. They said therefore to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Boy, they got a short memory. They got a short memory. A few hours before, he'd fed maybe 30,000 people, created food. This is not even a, a legitimate question. They're not really saying, do something to prove who you are. They are so totally controlled by the pain in their belly that all they're wanting is breakfast. They can't even get on to the real issue. So when they say, uh, do a sign to prove who you are, they're not really looking for a sign, they're looking for a free meal. What a low level of existence. And then it becomes, can you top this? Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And uh, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And you know what they're saying? Hey, you're not even as good as Moses. You fed us one meal. Moses prayed to God and God sent manna every day, every week, every month, every year. Big deal. One meal. Come on. Get with the program. See, I mean, you're not even up to Moses level. 
they are really persistent. The Lord makes four corrections, by the way, in their little analogy. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He says, number one, it wasn't Moses who gave you the manna, it was God. Number two, it was only manna, not the true bread. Number three, that bread only gave you physical nourishment. True bread will give you spiritual life. Number four, manna was for Israel. The true bread is for the world. And so, verse 34, wow, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. We want it. They really don't even know what they're asking. We want it. He says, all right, I am that bread. That's who he is. The bread of life for a hungry soul. He who, watch this, comes to me and he who believes in me will receive that bread. The hungry heart needs only one food. Jesus says, I am that food. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal left home because he wanted life. How did he interpret life? The world's menu, right? That was life. And what did he find? He wound up eating what? Pig slop. And he went back to his father's house and had a banquet and he was satisfied. That's where true satisfaction comes. In the father's house eating the bread who is Jesus Christ. What child is this? He is the bread of life for every hungry soul. Go to chapter 7 and verse 37. And here's another interesting thing. In verse 37, Jesus says, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Back in chapter 4, he had also said to the woman at the well that he was the living water. Now, what, what causes Jesus to all of a sudden stand up and say, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You can't just stand up in the middle of a crowd and say that. It's got to have a context. Verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood, and the word ekrodzin in the Greek means to yell or to scream. He shouted at the top of his voice. And he shouts to everybody that he's the living water ready to quench their spiritual thirst. As I said, he already claimed that in John 4, 7 to 14 to the Samaritan lady. And here he claims it again. But what is the message? Well, what is going on here? What is the issue? Let me give you a little bit of an insight. Look at verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast. What feast? Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the wandering of Israel in the wilderness. You remember when they wandered and they were tabernacled in the wilderness, leaving Egypt and heading for the Promised Land? And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, there were many parts of that commemorative feast that were celebrated in remembrance of those events that happened in the wilderness. One of the events that you will remember in the wilderness was that God provided water for His people, right? On several occasions. Even water from a rock, right? So part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the fact that God provided water for His people Israel. At one point in this feast, according to Leviticus 23.40, the worshipers were told to take the fruit of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of thick trees, and the willows of the brook. 
So everybody gets in like a big parade and they get all these branches in their hand. And then the Pharisees come along and everybody arrives at the temple for this big, vivid ceremony. Each day during the festival, they would come to the temple. They would be holding these palms and these willows and all these branches. And they would pull them all together by uh, the altar and form kind of a tent, kind of a, a canopy, kind of a brush arbor roof around the altar. At the very time when everybody got there with all their branches and formed this sort of branch tent, a priest took out a golden pitcher. And that golden pitcher would hold about two pints of water, according to the record. He would go over to the pool of Siloam, which is not far away, and scoop up water. And then he would carry back that pitcher of water to this tent where all the people were reciting Isaiah 12:3, which says, With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. When the water got back to the temple, it was poured out as an offering to God. And when it was poured out, the people began to sing and they would sing the Hallel, from which we get Hallelujah. The Hallel is Psalm 113 to 118. And they would sing. The Levitical choir would accompany them and some guys would play some, some flutes. And the whole dramatic ceremony was to remember Meribah, where God had provided water in the wilderness. On the last day of the feast, this ceremony reached its pinnacle and its climax. And it is in that moment when all of that is going on and the water is being poured out that Jesus stands up and says, I am the living water. The master of every moment, capturing that moment to turn people's hearts toward himself. At the top of his voice, he yells in a powerful, compelling sound. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so Jesus took that dramatic moment and focused it upon himself. And again, the message of Jesus is, if you're thirsty, that's a felt need. Come, that's an approach. And drink, that's an appropriation. Who is this child? None other than the living water. The poet said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. What child is this? Bread of life, living water. Chapter 8. Marvelous record. Verse 12. And again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, here's another I am. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, where is this happening? What made him say this? Go down to verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And you can stop at that point. The temple treasury, this is just a little bit of um, architectural insight. The temple treasury was in the court of the women. You remember the inner place would be the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And then there was a court around that where an altar was and the priests would go in there. 
There was a court there where men could enter. Then there was a wider court where only where women could go and they couldn't go any further in. And it was also called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles and women could go into that outer court only. Around the walls of that outer court on the temple site were 13 uh, trumpet-shaped receptacles on the wall. They had a wide opening like a, a trumpet might, probably bigger than that, and then a, a large capacity, and people put their offerings in there. Every one of those 13 receptacles had a function or a purpose. Certain offerings went into certain places. People came into that great court, and that was a place where everyone was milling about. People coming to give. In fact, when the Pharisees blew trumpets and announced their giving, that's where they did that. It was a place of much intercourse and activity. And it was in that place that Jesus was speaking when he said, I am the light of the world. People came there to give their offering. They came there to pay their taxes. They came there even to meet their friends. When Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, at this particular moment, you must understand the background. The Feast of Tabernacles, just mentioned in chapter 7, has just ended. One of the other features of the Feast of Tabernacle, in addition to the water, was a massive candelabra that was placed in the middle of this courtyard. Now, do you remember that when they wandered in the wilderness, not only did God provide manna, not only did God provide water, but you remember God provided a light for them. God provided the Shekinah glory. Remember the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led them? And in order to commemorate and celebrate the light, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud that led them, they put in the courtyard this massive candle, candelabra. And they lit that, and of course the courtyard was open, there was no roof on it. And so it, like a spotlight, it sent this beaming light out of the top of the temple courtyard for all the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And there in that place, that light shone. Now the feast is over. It is the day after the Feast of Tabernacles and this huge candelabra is still there. Testimony to the included, but it is dark. And Jesus comes into that very courtyard where everyone is moving in and around this huge candelabra, now dark. And he says to them in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in what? In darkness. And again, he captures the, the mystery of that moment, as it were, and turns it to himself. The ritual, by the way, was called, quote, the illumination of the temple. Right where Jesus was standing. He is the light that never goes out. He is the light that never diminishes. You saw a light, in effect, he says, that lit the city of Jerusalem. It remembered a light that lit the wilderness. I am a light to light your life that never goes out. What child is this whose star lit the sky? The child himself is the light of the world. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. You remember these words. Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And as the good shepherd in verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. 
And here we find that he is not only the bread and the water and the light, but he is the good shepherd. Beautiful statement. The picture of a shepherd is so deeply ingrained into the language of Scripture, into the warp and the woof of biblical times. The shepherd in Palestine had a difficult road to hoe, a difficult fare. Why? Because the land is barren, uh, the land is dry, uh, the grass would be at times of the year very sparse, and sheep tended to wander very far. The terrain is rough and steep. In fact, the rabbis used to say that when God was putting the rocks around the world, he made a mistake and dumped most of them in Israel. It's a very, very rough terrain. So the shepherd's task was constant to try to find grass, to try to collect a wandering group of sheep who were all over everywhere trying to find grass. And because other wild animals could be hidden in the rocks and because sheep could get out onto a precipice where they could be in great danger, it took constant vigilance, fearless courage, patient love, and tender care to be a good shepherd. In the Old Testament, as you know, God is seen as the shepherd. In the New Testament, Christ is seen as the shepherd, which makes them one and the same. And what the text tells us here, first of all, is that the shepherd cares for his sheep. He cares for his sheep. Let me just give you a little insight into that. At the end of the day, when the sheep were going into the fold, they would go out and graze, and then at night he would have to get them all together and get them into a fold where they would be protected at night. And when he brought them back to the fold, he would be at the entrance to the fold. Sometimes the fold was just a pile of rocks while a mound of dirt that would sort of encircle them. And he would get at the doorway and he would take his stick or his staff or his rod and he would put it across the doorway on the ground, near the ground, and every sheep had to pass under the rod one at a time. And once one got going, sheep or followers, they'd all go. And when he would put that rod down, he would stop the next sheep and examine that sheep. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 23, Thy rod and thy staff, they what? They comfort me. Because it's that stopping of the sheep with the rod that permitted the shepherd to individually touch and sense anything that was wrong with the sheep. Check the limbs of the sheep, check for any burrs in the wool of the sheep, and make sure the sheep was, was well. And if there was a problem, that's when he would anoint his head with oil. If his head had been bruised, he would raise the rod and the sheep would go into the safety of the fold and the rod would come down and he would do the same with the next sheep. It's a picture of tender, loving care. And in a very agrarian society where everybody understood the matter of shepherding, this would communicate volumes, volumes. Every sheep had to pass under the rod. Everyone was checked. And if needed, a wound was soothed with oil and bandaged up. You know what happened? The shepherd came to know every sheep and every little mark on every sheep and every little idiosyncrasy of every sheep. And then at night, the shepherd would lie down in that space that entered the fold, and he literally became the door. And so it says in verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. It says in verse 9, I am the door. In what sense is a shepherd a door? Only in that sense, as he's lying down across the entrance so that all night long any sheep was safe, anyone trying to enter would have to cross, as it were, the body of the shepherd. Now at night, in the summer, they didn't go back into the village to the fold there. They would stay in a sort of a fold open out in the, in the area where they were grazing. And it was even more important for the 
shepherd to become the door to protect the sheep. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is, I am a shepherd who protects his sheep. I am a shepherd who cares for his sheep. I am a shepherd who knows his sheep. I am a shepherd who takes care of the wounds of his sheep. And then in verse 3, if you back up, he says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He not only cares for his sheep, but he leads his sheep. The shepherd went first. You don't herd sheep like you do cattle. It may seem strange to you, but I had occasion when I was in high school to herd sheep in Death Valley. Don't ask me how I got that job. I had two interesting jobs. One was working in a pig farm in El Monte for some Armenian people who had the biggest garbage collection group in um, L.A. And my job was to, to herd pigs. Now, I'll tell you how you herd pigs. You herd pigs with a three-foot-long electrical prodder full of heavy-duty batteries, and you get about a 15-yard running start. Like, like you're, you know, fighting in King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. And you take a full-blown charge, and you tail-end the biggest pig. And I mean, that is fun, i got to admit. I mean, you just, and that pig just goes, Wah! you know, and takes off, and all the other pigs panic, and that's how you get them going. But I learned out in Death Valley, believe it or not, when I was there for a better part of a week helping this guy, that you don't work with sheep that way. You just start going some direction and have something that they want, and they all just follow along. And the Lord says, I lead my sheep. Clearing the path. And where does he lead his sheep? Psalm 23. Beside still waters. In green pastures. And he loves his sheep. Look at verse 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. That's love. He even dies for his sheep. You know what would happen to a shepherd if he came back and, and the guy... Usually the shepherd didn't own the sheep. He worked for the guy that owned the sheep. Let's say the shepherd comes back and says, You know something? Last night we were out there and a wolf came in and ate two of the sheep. I really regret that. It's just really too bad we lost those two. You know something? You know what the law said? Exodus twenty-two thirteen. If a sheep has been torn in pieces, then you have to bring some of the pieces in for a witness that that sheep was torn in pieces. Why? Because a shepherd could steal sheep. And so to prevent that, if you came back and said you lost a sheep to a wolf, then you had better have, as it says in Amos 3.12, at least two legs or an ear that you have personally yourself torn out of the mouth of the wolf or lion. And you better bring back that ear or that leg to prove that. So I'm telling you, if you didn't do that, you could pay with your life. Very serious responsibility. The shepherd had to bring proof that the sheep was lost. Or the sheep was uh, devoured. And if a sheep was lost, the shepherd had to find that sheep. Remember the imagery of uh, Matthew where Jesus goes out, uh, uh, where uh, Jesus pictures God going out after the one sheep. Remember 99 sheep and one is lost and he goes to find that one because that's so basic. Uh, the, The book, The Land of the Book, interesting book by a man named... 
Thomason. He writes this, I have listened with intense interest to the graphic descriptions of downright desperate fights with savage beasts among shepherds and how the thief and the robber came and the faithful shepherd is often to put his life in his hand to defend the flock. I have known more than one case where he literally had to lay it down in the contest. A poor faithful fellow last spring, he says, between Tiberius and Tabor, instead of fleeing, actually fought three... Bedouin robbers until he was hacked to bits with their conjars, those big swords, and died among the sheep he was defending. Can you imagine being hacked to pieces for a couple of lousy sheep? Well, that was the way that a shepherd developed affection for a sheep. I read in the paper two days ago about a lady suing a veterinarian down the street here because her dog died. I can't relate to that. I don't know her dog, but I can't imagine suing anybody over any dog. But I suppose if I had a dog, as I did when I was a little boy, I remember when I had a dog as a little boy, and my dog died, and I cried. I mean, I've been to funerals and seen dead people and didn't cry, but I cried when my dog died. Why? Because my dog was my dog. It had a part of my life. I don't know. The dog didn't know, care at all, but I did. And there was a sense in which a shepherd built a tremendously intimate relationship with sheep. Why? He was out there all alone, day after day after day after day, and his only companions were sheep. And so when it came to fighting off robbers who wanted to steal your sheep, here's a guy who gets hacked to bits because he's trying to save some sheep who haven't got the sense to care. But he knows. There's something in him that cares. How far more significant is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us when we didn't know and we didn't care. But we've come to know and come to care by His grace. What child is this? He is the Good Shepherd. Chapter 11. And you know this text. This is the, the section that tells us about the resurrection of Lazarus. Do you remember this verse? Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Now, what's the context for this? The context for this is, now watch this. Lazarus is what? Dead. In fact, he's been dead so long that his sister says, Lord, my brother, in King James English, stinketh. He's putrid by now. Jesus has been up uh, beyond the Jordan. The word came up, Lazarus is dead. Jesus ignored it for three days. He wanted Lazarus good and dead when he got back. The Jews had this belief that the, that the spirit of a dead person hovered over the body until the, fourth, the, the end of the third day and then left. So Jesus wanted to be sure that that sort of superstition, silly superstition, was accommodated and that the guy was good and dead and everybody's perception was the spirit had long departed and this was nothing but a corpse. Lazarus was buried. The Jews did not embalm. By this time, he stunk. The climate was warm. The decay would have been rather rapid. A pretty gross scene. Nothing to prevent it. Just a body wrapped up, lying in a grave, stinking. And Jesus waits till he's good and dead, and then Jesus shows up in Bethany. And she says, Oh, Lord, she says, If you, verse 21, had been here, my brother would not have died. I know you're good at healing, but nobody can do resurrections. Had she forgotten the resurrection power of Christ? Well, he says to her, your brother shall rise again. She says, I know, I know, he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I, I know all that eschatology stuff. 
I know there'll be a time when he rises. He said, then I am the resurrection and the life. You don't realize who you're talking to. So then he says, um, take me to the tomb. And she gets a little upset about that because she doesn't want any dramatic, gross scene taking place. And he comes out there, you remember, he wept, not because of Lazarus being dead, but at the consequence of sin, because Lazarus was an emblem of all the people who would die through all the ages as a result of sin. He wept. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Verse 39, look at this. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. He's been dead four days. Don't do that. Oh, we can't stand that. This is our brother. Don't take that stone away. Didn't I say to you, if you believe me, you'll see the glory of God. And so they removed the stone. He raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And he prays his prayer. Verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He had so much power, everybody would have come forth if he hadn't limited it just to Lazarus. Only Lazarus, you come forth. And he who had died came forth. Bound hand and foot with wrappings, his face was wrapped with a cloth. He walks out of there, he's a mummy. He's all wrapped up. And I I love this. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Somebody untie the guy. I don't know who it was, but I don't think I'd have been the guy. I'll watch, thank you. Imagine somebody peeling that baby back from his face. Oh. And many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. The resurrection and the life. He said it and instantaneously he proved it. Listen, every person in this world who has ever lived will rise from the dead, some to life and some to eternal damnation. Christ has the power of resurrection. What child is this? The resurrection and the life. Well, one more. Look at John 14. And this kind of sums up three things. As the last mentioned two, one is repeated here. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said, I'm going away, and the disciples fell apart. Jesus said, I'm I'm leaving you, and they didn't want that to happen at all. And so in verse 1, he says, stop letting your heart be troubled. Don't be anxious. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm just going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. You know where I'm going and you know how to get there. And they responding, of course, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going and how do we know the way? And Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to God. I am the truth about God. I am eternal life. You go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam had three things. Adam had communion with God. He had the knowledge of God. And he had life, eternal life. 
Adam communed with God, walked and talked with God the cool of the day. He knew God. There was intimate knowledge. There was no limitation to that knowledge. He understood God as fully as his capacity could allow him to do that. He had that wonderful intimate knowledge of God that goes along with communion and he possessed eternal life and no death principle. When he sinned, immediately he lost communion. He hid himself. Immediately he lost the knowledge of God. His mind became a reprobate mind, all confused with evil. And he lost life and became sentenced to death. So every man born into this world is born without communion with God, without the knowledge of God, without the life of God. Jesus comes along and says, I am the way back to that communion. I am the truth back to that knowledge. And I am the life eternal. All that man lost in the fall is gained in Christ. What child is this? This child is the one and only one who brings a man to God. Let me just mention chapter 15. Just briefly. Verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He says, I am a vine. Familiar figure. It speaks of his lowliness, his humiliation, for a vine is planted in the earth. It speaks of the union of a believer with him, for the vine and the branches have a closeness and a communion that is what he has with his own. It speaks of fruitfulness and productivity. He produces through that branch fruit. It speaks of dependence, for we bear fruit only because he bears it through us. He is the vine, we are the branches. He has the life and the power that pulses through us to produce the fruit. That's who this child is. He is bread for the hungry. He is water for the thirsty. He is light for those in darkness. He is the good shepherd for lost sheep. He is the resurrection and life for all who are spiritually dead. He is the way, the truth, and the life for those separated from God. He is the vine who produces through us divine fruit. When we come to the Christmas season, if we don't see this, then Christmas has absolutely no meaning at all. May it be, it's my prayer, may it be all of our prayer that Christ would be exalted this Christmas. And that will happen, first of all, young people, as we really exalt him for who he is. Let's pray together.